Welcome, everybody. Good evening. You may think that a rock concert is about to start because of all this wiring up and stuff and stuff. That's not what's going to happen. But the most exciting discussion of, as the Brits say, dull German elections. We will show you that it is not dull at all. My name is Walter Czerkli. I'm a political economist at the European Institute. And I have a great panel here with very different expertises. By the way, if you feel an urge to uh, Twitter, uh, the hashtag for this is LSE German, Germany. Um, so to my uh, uh, left is Billy Patterson, William Patterson. He's a professor at Aston, was before in Birmingham, Edinburgh, and so on. I mean, he's the doyen of British-German uh, relations. For example, he gave the eulogies when Willy Brandt and Helmut Kohl got their um, honorary doctorates at Warwick and, and uh, where was the other? Edinburgh, respectively. Uh, he got an OBE for, in 1999 for his... Um, um, services to the British-German relations, and before that he had got the Bundesverdienstkreuz Erster Klasse, which is um, the equivalent in a republic. So here you have the expert, and you had to rein him in not to talk about everything on German elections tonight, because he could if he wanted to. Then to, to my immediate right, I have Natasha Zaun, which is a great pleasure to me because she's a new colleague of mine. She is a political scientist who works on migration. She has joined us from Oxford, um, and before she did her PhD on the common asylum policy of the EU at Bremen. Um, and so she works on a question that was obviously for a while looked like a real vulnerability for uh, Angela Merkel, has died down a bit, but um, we all think that this is not a done deal, and um, so we would like to hear from, from Natasha how this whole issue plays out, and I'm sure you're interested too. And finally, we have Christian Odendahl, who is an economist, the chief economist of the Center for European Reform, uh, a superb think tank of whom we have very often staff here uh, when we need some experts uh, on everything European and the British a critical, sympathetic uh, perspective on Europe uh, from a British think tank. He was, before he joined this uh, Center for European Reform, a senior economist at Rubini Global Economics in London. You know, Rubini, who uh, gained his reputation for predicting one of the big crises. And he was a journalism fellow at The Economist. So clearly an ex expert also on the economic aspects of these uh, uh, of the German elections and what it means for Europe. So I hope you can join me to welcome our panel. Each one will talk for about 10 minutes and then we go straight into a Q&A because we started a bit late and I won't start have a conversation here bef uh, before. Okay, well, I'll start off by making a snap British-German comparison and Theresa May called the snap election in April. Many observers saw her as a British Merkel. They wrote of her being in power into the foreseeable future. She the enthusiastic support of the large conservative press and was confronted with what to be a very weak. Of course. Hello? Yeah, you can hear me now. Okay, well, these plans were uh, sabotaged by uh, Prime Minister May's stunningly bad election. The result of the election was a loss of the majority, a, deep, a deeply polarised electorate. The contrast with Germany could hardly be more striking. A public opinion survey came out about a fortnight ago from the Bertelsmann Foundation, it's entitled, A Source of Stability, Germany and European Public Opinion in Times of Political 
a polarization. It argues strongly in favor of stability. 59% think that their country is heading in the right direction. 77% say their economic situation has stayed the same or improved. A, and 75% would vote to remain. The most striking thing, though, the most striking thing and the really key thing is the absence of polarization with over 80% classifying themselves as centrist. The key explanation for this is uh, the health of the German economy. Given this absence of polarization, Chancellor Merkel is the ideal candidate. She's somebody who is a poor campaigner, but she doesn't need to be a good campaigner because she can rely uh, on her achievements. Her period in office has coincided with a succession of crises, but she has been able to manage a number of crises concurrently. She's also proved to be very adept at party management, particularly in what uh, is called asymmetric demobilization. In other words, stealing the clothes of other parties. Most obvious example is the exit from nuclear energy, which uh, stole the raison d'etre of, uh, of the Greens. If we look at the SPD in this election, against that background, there simply wasn't enough space. And the theme of social justice didn't have enough traction when people uh, felt as they did about their economic uh, situation. Uh, in recent years, I don't want to spend, uh, I realise I'm very much under time pressure. Uh, there's no doubt that Chancellor Merkel is going to win. The key question is who will be her coalition partner? Her preferred coalition partner, I think, would be the FDP, but that's very, the, the Liberal Democrats, that's very unlikely to produce a majority. They then might turn to the Greens. Uh, the problem is that the Greens are on 6% now. They're a bit of a... Uh, and so this may not happen. Uh, then the most likely thing is that we would get a coalition with the SPD again. And these coalitions, what particular coalition she chooses or eventually appears will have a big impact on what policy... Uh, she can pursue, and that's something we'll uh, talk about later. I see I've got very little time. I mean, I had quite a lot on Franco. I'd like, to see. I'd like to see how you go through. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 I had quite a lot on the Franco-German uh, choices, but I think that's something that's going to come up yeah. again and again. Uh, what I want to say about that is uh, when we look at these choices, uh, Macron, in a speech at the Humboldt, he said that in order to have a successful European policy, and he quoted Jacques Delors there, you need screwdrivers and vision. Well, Helmut Kohl had lots of vision, but he tended to leave the screwdrivers at home. Uh, the present chancellor has been the opposite. There's been no vision whatsoever, but she's incredibly handy with the screwdriver and knowing where to tighten things up. I, uh, I think that's going to be, when, when we come to looking at the Franco-German thing, one, one constraint will be the coalition partner, but another constraint will be Merkel herself, and whether it's the screwdriver or the vision uh, that she reaches for. I just mentioned en passant, because uh, it's not worth, I think, spending a lot of time on, on Brexit. The l a number of people in Britain uh, keep saying that, well, once the election is over, then Germany uh, will come to Britain's rescue. I don't believe that. 
I, don't be, I just don't believe that's going to happen because they overestimate a, the traction of German industry. In recent years, contrary to most of the time I've been studying Germany, they, they have lost a lot of traction. If you, if you look at TTIP, that was incredibly important for an export-orienting nation, but the people I know in the BDI and BDA, they just couldn't get any traction whatsoever. So I'm very sceptical. Uh, and the key thing for the Chancellor and the key thing for everybody is holding the European Union together. That seems obvious to me. And, hold, and the British question, we are simply in the rearview mirror, basically. Let me come now, I'll come to the conclusion, because I've got some things to say. The, the, the big picture is in the conclusion. The picture emerges from the election is one of a state and public opinion at peace with itself. How very different from our own dear country. It's a it's state and public opinion at peace with itself. It's also supportive of German leadership in the EU. And it lacks the polarisation of all other member states, or nearly all other large member states in the EU. The overall impression reflecting its economic prosperity is one of a stable, self-satisfied, incredibly self-satisfied, and why not, incredibly self-satisfied polity. A polity whose public opinion insists on the privileging of German economic interests. All public opinions do that. The German public opinion is in a stronger position to see that implemented. The campaign itself, it seems to me, has often been reminiscent of one in which the participants attempt to pelt each other to death with balls of cotton wool. There's basically not been a campaign. In one sense, this is deeply reassuring. There has never been a made-in-Germany crisis in the EU. We've seen crisis in France with the rejection of the uh, referendum We've certainly seen crises in Britain and Italy, but there's never been a made-in-Germany crisis, and such a crisis would mean the end of the EU. Germany is the anchor of the EU. The nearest we've come to this vision is the refugee crisis, uh -huh. but it was still some way away. If we look at these public opinion uh, figures from Bertelsmann show that the, the reservoir, reservoir of anti-Europeanism is on the right and if the AFD gets into Parliament it's possible that this will increase a bit. If that is the reassuring news then the depressing news uh, is that the economic prosperity which makes it so domestically stable unbelievably stable makes it somewhat insensitive to the needs and anxieties uh, of its weaker neighbours, see Greece. And it will there'll be the title of this uh, session was a changing Germany in a changing Europe. Well, Germany is not changing. <laughs> uh, Germany is continuing, uh, but the European Union is changing. There are problems both on the southern flank and the eastern flank and uh, it's difficult to imagine our Germany I think will uh, find some difficulty in responding to these changes. Germany is the indispensable state I've described it as the reluctant hegemon of the European of the Eurozone but no vision was articulated in the election campaign of how Germany itself saw this leadership. That's something that's always been, you know, he's talked about leading from behind, but no vision has been. That wasn't the case with Kohl. Uh, uh, apart from a renewed endorsement of the Franco-German relationship. But we live in different times. And endorsing the Franco-German relationship, which was at the centre of German-European policy for most of the period, the post-war period, and was very, very successful, produced unity and so on. That may not be enough now. 
See, through the weakness of others, uh, the expectations about Germany are very, very high. And this isn't only in relation to Europe. Well, not not more in a minute now. Isn't only in relation to Europe. It's true uh, more widely with the advent of Trump. uh, Some people see Germany as the last defense of the liberal order. And this is a huge ask to place on Germany. And I'm not sure that Germany can provide a a cure-all on its own. It's unlikely to solve the problems of the southern and eastern Franks on its own. And the refugee crisis remains a threat. And so that what I see happening is that, you know, my friend Tim Horton, I think in the JCMS, referred to the crisis as the new normal. It's not terminal, but it's normal. So I see the crisis continuing, and Germany will not be able to master all these crises, because nobody can, but Germany will remain, and thank God for that, will remain the crisis manager. Okay. Thank you very much. So after this big overview uh, of all the topics that you can attach to the uh, German elections, we hone now into that more specific question of the refugee crisis. Is that the next thing that bubbles up? And Natasha will talk from the lectern. Okay, perfect, great, thanks. Yeah, so um, unlike my my uh, co-panelists, I'm not actually an an expert on German politics, but as um, Walter just mentioned, my research's focus is on uh, European migration policies and politics, and obviously Germany played an important role in that recently, and of course also you... Can you hear it? Yeah. Oh, that's... Okay, that's not very fortunate. <laughs> Anyways, I... Well, okay. Can you hear me? Is it... Can you hear me better? Okay. Perfect. Okay, I, I probably won't be able to move. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so obviously, um, European migration politics played an important role in German politics in the last year, but not so much, actually, in the elect electoral campaign recently. So that's why my presentation is not so much focusing on the refugee crisis, but I'm very happy uh, to, to extend on that in the Q&A. I'm obviously also, as a German citizen, focusing on the, on the German electoral campaign. Um, and, and here it's actually quite, quite striking to see that there is really no electoral campaign taking place. And I think uh, Waltraud also mentioned it. It's, the elections are quite dull. We had these really interesting and kind of exciting European elections in France where the question was really, okay, is France France going to have um, a president who is a right-wing populist and obviously anti-European? There were the, the, the British elections this year as well, where, um, which were expected to have an impact on Britain's role in the negotiations and the positions Britain was, was going to take, like towards a hard or uh, a soft Brexit. But in the German elections, really, you don't see a campaign, and that's that's something that's quite nicely, I think, illustrated by this cover of the Spiegel, where you see this this kind of giant Merkel turning her back on her opponent, um, Martin Schulz from the Social Democrat uh, Party, um, who used to be the um, the president of the European Parliament, and he's kind of trying to challenge her a little bit, but also not that much, uh, and he's he's obviously not getting getting a response, and um, part of this is, of course, that. Um, the CDU and the SPD have been in a grand coalition for, for several years now. And, of course, it's really hard for him to criticize Merkel on that ground because it obviously would also imply criticizing his own party. Um, and then if you follow the, the, the electoral campaign and the elections and the presentation in the media, you get really the impression that the CDU, so Merkel's party, is very likely to win this election by a large majority. And that's also obviously illustrated by the, by the giant Merkel. Um, and if you just look at the, the, the electoral support from opinion polls, uh, so the, the upper uh, black uh, line, that's support for the CDU. The red line is support for the, uh, for the SPD. Um, 
obviously there you see that there is has always for actually for the last two years been a large gap between the two uh, two parties, except for the one for for actually um, spring two thousand seventeen where um, 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 Schulz had been recently nominated and where he was actually for some time taking a strong stance on on issues like justice and um, um, particularly focusing on, on workers, conditions of workers. Um, so at that time, yes, there was, there was obviously some support for the SPD, but now there is again this, this huge gap. And of course, as someone working on asylum and migration, you can also see uh, that support for the CDU was actually going down after um, October 2015, so the so-called European refugee crisis. And that and that time, the blue, light blue line is, uh, is going up. So support for the AfD, the alternative for Germany, which is a right-wing uh, populist party. Um, and um, around that time, at some point, they were around, had around uh, 15% um, of uh, support in, in the opinion polls. That's declined recently. But um, as you can see in the next slide, they're actually, in current opinion polls, the third strongest party which is um, quite striking, and I will come to that in a minute again. So just by looking at the latest opinion polls, and of course you always have to take them with a grain of salt because you never know what will happen on the day of the elections if people will say, okay, I am actually in favor of the CDU, but since Merkel is going to win anyways, I don't need to go, or maybe people say, okay, I I support uh, Schulz, but actually um, I know he stands no chances so so I'm not going to take part in these elections but but still I think it's a it's a good it gives a good idea of what what the the mood really is among uh, the um, yeah the public and I think um, Christian will also expand perhaps a little bit on the um, the potential coalitions that could, could come out of this uh, as William also mentioned I mean one option could be again a grand coalition uh, which probably has the same negative effects on this SPD that I also previously mentioned about uh, them losing profile. Another uh, debated um, uh, coalition is the CDU-FTP, but there um, is generally not a lot of support for them getting a majority. Um, So what are the immediate implications? Well, domestically, I would say there is, yeah, there is the status quo will be maintained rather than there is going to be a lot of change, particularly if, if Merkel is, is staying in power, and uh, particularly, of course, if there is a grand coalition again. Um, I think, again, Christian will perhaps expand on the CDU co- and the FDP coalition and the, impl- um, the um, implications of that, because obviously the FDP, the liberals, uh, might have a very different stance on some of tax-related issues uh, and um, working... Um, conditions. Um, but what all of these parties that are currently discussed to be potential, potentially in the, in the next German government, what they, what they share is um, a strong pro-European stance. So that's also where there's actually uh, a lot of continui- or continuity is rather likely uh, and m- much more likely than change at the European level um, as well. So what are the wider implications? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, okay, that's that suggests a lot of stability, as William also said, um, and maybe stability in leadership is a, is, a, is a good thing in times of uncertainty, where you have a lot of obviously a lot of changes in government and uh, leaders um, who um, um, yeah might not really represent this this stability. Um, some people also presented Merkel as kind of the leader of the free world. I mean, we can discuss whether this makes sense, but it, it's something that has been advanced by people. Um, I think, and I here draw actually on the same study that William also mentioned, um, it is also, of course, an expression, so this stasis is an expression of the German public being very content with the situation as it is and with the status, status quo. Um, interestingly, though, there is not so much, or the Germans are actually quite uh, critical towards, um, towards the future, while they're actually quite... Um, happy and content with um, the, the situation of their country, they're quite skeptical about the situation of Europe and the direction that Europe is taking. Only 28% in this opinion polls thought that that was a good direction. Uh, but there is a general strong consensus, of course, of remaining in the European Union. But I think there is an important but, 
So something that should perhaps make us a bit more, um, yeah, not so, so optimistic about the future and, and some change that we do actually see. Because, of course, as compared to other European countries, there is not this strong polarization but there is a group of voters that decreasingly feels represented by mainstream politi um, po politicians. And there is actually research out there, and I um, quote a study from Elsa and others, saying these people are right. Their positions are actually not represented by mainstream um, conservative parties, for example. Positions about the royal family, migration, not, not necessarily really kind of right-wing positions, but conservative positions. And... Of course, if these people see that whatever you do, Merkel is going to be the next chancellor, that might have further, or might at least further demobilize voters. And I think which is also, what is also something that's quite striking and what's actually a change is that for the first time, there is, it's very likely that right-wing populist party is going to be in the, in the national parliament in Germany, and that never actually happened before in history. And if you look to school books or university books, you would always see that, yeah, in Germany, it's, there is not a lot of support for right-wing populism exactly because of the history, but this is now changing. And, yeah, I would like to thank you very much for your attention. So, finally, we have, and uh, Christian will talk, obviously, a bit more about the economic implications. I have to stand here. Is that, okay? is that okay? Can you hear me? Yeah. All right, fantastic. So, uh, first of all, thanks a lot for the invitation. Um, I was privileged to spend a year at LSE during my PhD. It's such a great place to work and study. Um, I'm also privileged to honor to be on the same panel with William Patterson. Um, I briefly considered whether I should just give him my 10 minutes so we all get to learn a bit more. Uh, but the LSE invited me to speak, so I guess I should do that. Um, so, as an economist, I want to focus on the on, on the three economics questions that I get, oh, those are references, potential yeah. correlations. Oh, there you go. Um, on, on the three questions that I get asked a lot uh, when it comes to the German election, the first is, um, as a result of the German election, will the German economy rebalance towards more imports? Will Germany and France reform and deeper integrate the Eurozone? And the third question, although William already gave you the answer, uh, will... Uh, <laughs> Will Germany put economics first and uh, uh, come to the rescue of Brexit Britain? Now, spoiler alert, the answers to these questions will be uh, not really. Um, uh, not really and uh, almost certainly not. And, uh, I'm going to spend the remaining nine minutes to explain why, or at least why I believe that. Um, so the German economy, as, as uh, a lot of you know, has a very stubborn current account surplus of 8% of GDP or more, and that is economically problematic because the flip side of every current account surplus is a capital export, and uh, for the world, as the global financial crisis has shown, it's a problem to be absorbing that much capital. Um, so the German capital export, in a way, can fuel debt bubbles elsewhere in the world. For Europe, the current account surplus is an issue because... Uh, Currently, interest rates are low, inflation is low. Europe clearly needs more demand, but Germany is not generating itself enough of it. it. Instead, it's exporting a demand problem first to Europe and then to the rest of the world. And for Germany itself, it's problematic too because Germany invests too much abroad and too little at home. And uh, as an economist, I have to put one chart in here. Um, so this is, uh, this is German public investment, net public investment, net of depreciation since reunification. And you can see that there was quite a bit of investment right after reunification. But Germany invests so little that the entire investment after reunification has practically vanished. And private investment is weak too, so both low public and low private investment lowers the growth potential of Germany. Now, will the German election change any of that? Um, German rebalancing... Oh, sorry, that's a billion euros. Billion euros. Um, so um, to rebalance the German economy, that requires lots of little steps here and there. It's not one big policy change that will basically rebalance the German economy. But generally speaking, one can say that what we need is higher net wages to boost consumption and, of course, higher public and private investment. So in a way, that means the more left-wing the government, the more likely you will get those changes. But even with a conservative government, I would argue, we will see a little bit of that change. And this is a poll 
that I found um, interesting. This is the question is, uh, what should the German government do with the additional uh, budget surplus? And this is to the left is debt reduction, in the middle is tax cuts, and to the right is investment. And what I found striking about this is not necessarily that the numbers are c clearly in favor of investment, but that there's hardly any difference between left and right-leaning voters. That's red and black. And so, um, so the political mood points towards more spending, more investment. Uh, but there's also automatic ways in which German fiscal policy will become more expansionary. Germany has a constitutional debt rule called the debt break, and uh, it, it's supposed to prescribe neutral fiscal policies over the business cycle, so slight deficits and recessions, slight surpluses and boom times. And uh, the problem with a debt break is that it's not suitable for a monetary union. In a monetary union, fiscal policy needs to be much more, needs to lean against the wind much, much more aggressively than if countries have access to monetary policy. And so uh, it might be, the German debt break might be suitable for a country like the UK or Sweden with its own currency, its own monetary policy, but for Germany that's probably not going to be enough. And what does that mean? In Germany we're nearing full employment. Uh, that means um, in order to contain the economy before it overheats, fiscal policy would need to be much more restrictive than the debt break currently prescribes. Now, don't get me wrong, this is good news for Europe, right? A mildly overheating German economy is exactly what the doctor ordered, right? But um, uh, to boost consumption, to boost investments. So slowly, the German economy would probably rebalance. The sad fact is, though, that this is not a deliberate... Uh, this is not happening because Germany deliberately chooses a policy that rebalances its, its economy and helps Europe, uh, but Germany is more or less running on fiscal autopilot, but finally and slowly this is, this is helping the rest of Europe. Um, now the next question is on Eurozone reform. Many people in, in Europe seem to agree that the Eurozone in its current form is unsustainable. Um, the euro can only work in the long term if it makes the lives of people better, and I think empirically uh, the euro has so far failed. Um, so economically I think we can muddle through, muddle through, but I think politically that is undermining the appeal of the EU. Um, now, what does the eurozone need? I just made a quick list, so we, I will just quickly go through it, and then we can talk about whether Germany and France agree on any of those. Um, so macroeconomically, um, the eurozone needs sufficient demand to keep, uh, to keep inflation stable at 2%. Uh, we don't have that at the moment. Um, projections are that inflation will still be, be below 2% in 2019-20. That is still a long way off. And in such deep crisis, we need fiscal policy to support monetary policy, uh, to revive the economy we need strongly counter-cyclical fiscal policy at the national level, as I explained in the context of the debt break, to prevent the kinds of divergences we've seen also in wages and prices. We still need to correct those. This is why we, uh, we, should, have, we should get mild overheating of Germany and not deflation in the south. Uh, we also need balanced economies so that they don't send large capital flows around the eurozone. Um, if such financial crises come, we need a strong lender of last resort in the form of the ECB to both sovereigns and banks. Uh, the banking union needs to be completed, which means a deposit insurance, which needs a large common backstop. Um, we need to create or make progress on the capital union, which, may, which means harmonization of rules and regulations, uh, insolvency regimes, tax regimes, and so forth. So as you can see, this is quite a list, right? Um, and the sad fact is, of course, that Fr France and Germany don't agree on any of that. Right. Um, and so um, the issue, some, on some issues, they end up disagree so fundamentally that I don't think there will be any agreement. Um, the most visible, I think, is Eurozone fiscal policy. Now, Macron wants to have a Eurozone finance ministry with a sizable budget. And in response, Merkel said, yeah, I could imagine a Eurozone economics and finance ministry with a small budget. So notice what she said. She said an economics and finance ministry, which basically means the Eurozone finance minister should support structural reforms or enforce the fiscal rules. And it should have a small budget, which means macroeconomically irrelevant. So in a sense, uh, you can tell that we were probably going, I think there's agreement that we will get something, uh, but I don't think it will be more than a, than a face-saving deal. Um, that deal will probably be more meaningful if we have the Social Democrats in government and a bit less meaningful uh, or almost empty when we have a Merkel Free Democrats government because they have quite... Uh, different views. But if the hope was that Merkel in her final term will make Germany the benevolent hegemon of the Eurozone, uh, I think those hopes uh, will clearly be disappointed. 
And speaking of hopes that we'll be disappointed, uh, let's turn to Brexit. I have, William Patterson have given, has given the answer, but I just want to give you my three reasons for why this is not going to happen. Um, first, the EU is not some kind of transactional economic project, as it is maybe for, for some in Britain. Uh, the EU is Germany's core national interest and uh, the, the anchor to tie its neighborhood together. So the stability and integrity of the, Euros, uh, of the EU is more important than anything Britain has to offer. And that is, a, by the way, a consensus position across all major German parties. The second is that the economic case for being soft on Britain is not as strong as, as it's often made out to be. Uh, German businesses have supply chains crisscrossing the entire EU. They are very involved in international trade. And that is, also, that is only possible because we have the single market in the EU with all its institutions and rules and regulations that free up trade. It's also that the EU has considerable clouds in international trade negotiations. And so if German businesses were forced to choose, they would always choose to protect the single market over tariff-free access to the UK. And the third case is that Germany does not want to lead the EU. Why? Because in order for the EU to work, it cannot be a vehicle of German domination. Um, if it were, it would quickly become unattractive for others in, 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 in the EU, and that would clearly not be in the EU's interest. And in fact, one of the key reasons to build the EU was to contain or at least to embed uh, German power. Now, Germany already had to lead, in a way, or dominate the EU in the euro crisis, in the refugee crisis, and it will almost certainly be unwilling to lead the EU uh, um, and, and strong-arm the rest of the EU into a softer position on Brexit, even if Germany had one. So for Brexit, the elections will change nothing, and I want to end with one, with one uh, little, little remark on the, on the election. It has been a dull campaign, um, and some in this country have said it's positive because of the experiences that, that, that people have made in this country with Brexit and, and, and the aftermath. Uh, but I think in order for Germany to become the leading nation that Europe would need in a changing, in a changing Europe, um, I think uh, we would have to have more open and more constructive debates than we've had so far in the election campaign. Thank you very much. So I would just like to highlight the things that really should have surprised you. First of all, there was no gender stereotype when it comes to visions and to, to screwdrivers. The, the women know how to use the screwdrivers. She does. Um, that actually, if anything, Merkel most demobilizes conservative voters. Um, and then finally, that the, the German public becomes very Keynesian compared to its government, uh, relatively speaking. They are in favor of more spending on and public investment. So now, it's your turn, and we give the stewards a running for the little money we pay them, or whatever the saying is. Okay, who wants to go first? Over here, first, in the first row. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sophia Besch. I'm a colleague of Christians at the Center for European Reform. Hi. Uh, I have very brief questions for all speakers. One of them goes to something that Christian talked about in the end, which is the fact that should we be reassured at this boring election or should we be worried? And I'm looking especially to William Peterson here because you've given us the grand picture. So I'm asking you to look to the next election. If this one is so boring, will the next one still be boring if there is such a big uh, group of German voters who feels not represented by Merkel but doesn't see a mainstream alternative to her? And then another very quick, very quick yes. question okay. was... Um, Usually just one. ...that... We have talked about Angela Merkel relying on her achievements of the status quo being really good, of uh, German unemployment being really low. Are these her achievements? Or are these the achievements of the Social Democrats, of the Hartz reforms that came before her? And if they are, why are the Social Democrats not benefiting from that? Thank you very much. So first thing, introduce yourself and then be brief and succinctly. Okay. The gentleman over there in the green sweater. Anybody else? Uh, sorry, sorry, sir. One moment. There's first that young man over there. And then you get... You should have worn a green sweater, then you could have claimed the fact. Three at a time. Uh, hi, my name's Philip Tate. I was just, uh, towards the end of August, Merkel finally spoke publicly on the rule of law crisis in Poland, uh, noting that she took the issue very seriously. 
I wonder what the panel thinks, uh, perhaps after this election, whether or not Merkel will take a more muscular approach to defending EU values. Values, and then the gentleman who had just risen and was very eager to ask a question. One moment, wait for the micro, because we are, we are taking a, we are taking a, a podcast. Okay, and I don't need it. Okay. No, sir, sir, I cannot give, give you the vote. If you, you need to take the microphone because we have later okay. have a podcast and it okay. should be recorded. I'm struck by the fact that neither of the uh, first two speakers considered this alter the alternative of Angela Merkel leading a government consisting of the CDU and CSU, as has been done in the past, the Germans are contented, she has no significant opposition, and you consider every alternative except the fact that she would be, she would head a government according to her heart with just the conservatives in office. So what about a purely conservative government? I'll give now the first question by Ekebat Besch to Billy. Okay, the, the point that was being made there was the absence of any debate in the election. Germany is now the key power in Europe. Everybody looks to Germany for a lead. So it seems to me to be quite important that Germany does have this debate. Uh, my friend Hans Maurer has said that if we're going to move forward then every country has to have a debate, particularly if we're going to have these changes, because some of the, not in Germany, but in other countries, it will have to, they will have to have referendum, so that we need a debate. The debate is not going to come from Chancellor Merkel, I don't think. She is incredibly cautious. I, uh, some of you can remember the election that she fought with Schroeder and she it was quite a bold campaign, flat tax and so on, and she was more or less annihilated. She won just. But so, since then, she's been incredibly cautious. I think that what is going to happen is that, um, surprisingly from a strange position, that the, uh, the president has taken Thomas Bagger, who was the possibly the most the outstanding public official in Europe. He's taken him from the Foreign Office to the President's Office. And the idea is that Bagger, not Steinmeier, Bagger will write a number of key speeches in order to precipitate a debate in Germany. And I'm, I think that something like that may happen. Otherwise, I just see stalemate. And I think before we come to the next election, it has to be clearer for everybody uh, what Germany thinks. I think the difficulty, just to finish off, I, I won't do the other question. The difficulty is, you, you talked about 2021. The difficulty is seeing who could be a conceivable winning candidate for the SPD. I scratch my head uh, when I think of that. And we can't possibly have Angela Merkel again, or can we? Can I then ask Christian to ask, answer this question about can Angela Merkel really claim the, the praise for the low unemployment? And I was teaching today on an executive master's course. I showed the students figures that Working poverty in Germany, only one other OECD country has as high working poverty in the United States. How can it be that the Social Democratic Party cannot capitalize on that? So um, when Merkel started in 2005, the German economy had, um, I think, 11% unemployment, basically no growth for four years. Um, and uh, a fiscal deficit of more than 3%. And now we had full employment, budget surplus, and so forth. So one could be tempted to give Merkel credit. The interesting thing is she doesn't give herself the credit. She does something way, way smarter. She gives credit to the labor market reforms of the Social Democrats that were implemented just before she took power, which puts the SPD, which is already in a terrible position, in an even more terrible situation yeah. because sure. they have the choice of either sticking with the reforms and buying into the narrative that it was these reforms, 
Um, or uh, they could uh, announce to change these reforms again and be blamed for putting the German economy at risk. So that is that is very, very clever of her. Um, I don't believe that the, that the labor market reforms did that much uh, for, for the German economy. I think there were lots of other factors happening at the same time, which just coincided with the reforms and now makes the reforms look very good. And, and Valtrot is right. They, they were, uh, the reforms uh, might have had side effects and they didn't tackle the large low-wage sector that Germany already had when Merkel took power and so forth. And so the SPD is in a, is in a terrible position when it comes to that. They cannot really claim, uh, they cannot really claim the, the, the benefit of these reforms uh, because they are quite unpopular. Uh, they cannot say that these reforms need to be rolled back because then they will be blamed for putting the German economy at risk. So, um, yeah, it, there's a reason why the SPD is, to, is standing at 20%. robust with Poland. Now I have to. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, traditionally, Merkel was, is not a very, or does not appear to be a very principled person who speaks out just because of values. I mean, she seemed to have done that in the refugee crisis. I, th I think it's, in a way, you can still contest, contest this, but and I don't want to go into details here, but um, um, but I think she has, I mean, what is quite interesting, she has, um, she, she has been a bit more outspoken on, on such issues, for example, vis-a-vis -vis Trump. Uh, right after his elections, she, she didn't, I mean, she, she still um, mentioned that, um, okay, okay not, of course, um, the U.S. and Germany are going to work together, but there are certain principles that should be stick to. Then also after Charlottesville, uh, she took a relatively clear stance as opposed to, to um, other countries. So I think... Um, Maybe in her fourth uh, legislative period, she might actually take such a, a stronger position. But you again have to think of, of course, the strategic implications of that. The German-Polish um, relations have been actually quite cool after the uh, refugee crisis, particularly because Poland and other uh, Central Eastern European countries um, um, felt forced to have to take ref refugees from Italy and Greece, which they initially didn't want to do. So um, I think that is something that she might take into consideration. Then she probably, as a very strategic and uh, yeah, very strategic person, won't act upon principles, but again, more on her strategic interests in to kind of keep the EU together and not to have too many too much dissents. And then the last question, I give back to to Willy. Uh, is, is, why did you not consider that she might lead a purely conservative government? Is it perhaps because we don't think that she would be so happy with only her conservative policy? Well, I think she wouldn't be so happy. I imagine being in a coalition just with the C CSU. Uh, that's not something that would make her happy. But also, if you look at Merkel, she is a master of coalition behaviour. She's a master in the council and she is, I don't know whether to say master or mistress, she is completely at home in coalition government. She's absolutely brilliant at it. And she's likely to get more of her own way in a coalition government. It's partly, we were talking about it beforehand, she has a little bit of the Helmut Schmidt. Helmut Schmidt was able to get his own way because of his extraordinary competence. He was the only German chancellor who could fulfill the Richtlinie. He could do every post. He knew more about every post. She's not quite in that level, but she's still incredibly clever. So uh, the, having, having a, a coalition, she prefers some coalitions rather than others, but she, she ends up uh, by dominating the coalition Christian said before we came in about how the SPD had hoped by getting some of their points in the governmental program after the election that this would work out to their advantage. No, it didn't. People gave all the credit to Merkel, and that's what will always happen. So she's going to prefer a coalition. Another round. So over there... You can show me your hands, then I can locate a little bit before. Andrew, <coughs> excuse me, Andrew Smith. Uh, the last uh, UK general election and the last US presidential election gave us big shocks. Is there any chance at all that Germany will give us a shock? The gentleman in, in the white shirt there, just down here, 
All the speakers have quoted uh, uh, opinion polls. What about the demographics that underlie those opinion polls? Are there divisions, for example, east-west, north-south, Catholic-Protestant, urban-rural, that may show themselves in discontent after an election? Uh, and then the gentleman there in the screen. Hello? Yes? Uh, no, behind. Sorry. I, you come the next oh. round. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, my name is uh, Dirk Stadig. I have a question for Ms. Zaun. You were the only one to explicitly mention the rise of the Alternative for Deutschland. Yeah. Is there a fear in Germany that the, the narrative in national politics will change as a consequence of their election to the national parliament, as it has been in so many other European countries? Okay. Uh, who would like to take the first question? Remind us what it is. That's an easy one. Then you go ahead. <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I mean, the only sh really shock would be uh, if Merkel didn't get a coalition together um, and uh, Martin Schulz and uh, the Greens and the left would command the majority, but the chances are really, really, really slim for that. Could I just say one thing? People, in the run-up to the election, in the run-up to election, but not at this point, People thought that, or some people thought that, if there was a major refugee crisis, if the flow of refugees really accelerated again, that could make a difference. But I think the time for that has passed. Willie, would you take the second question on the regional dimensions? The regional. I was so concerned about with who is there to. Uh, that I missed the question. You, you said we, you didn't talk about the, the regional divisions in, in Germany and how the east-west plays out. Is that correct? All demographic subcategories. East, west, north, south, rural, urban, Catholic, public. Well, Bloody hell. <laughs> I mean, that, that your thesis was there is no polarization along these there lines. Is no, well, there is no polarization, but a, one caveat would be that there is an east-west split and the uh, support for uh, the left uh, uh, is much stronger in the eastern part of Germany uh, than in the rest of Germany. The, in Catholic areas, I think uh, it is fair to say that there, well, they, I'm trying to find a tactful way of putting it, but they, uh, they are, I think, more alarmed uh, about refugees, though they weren't initially when the refugees came through Munich. But I never believed that was going to last. I think that part of Germany uh, uh, has a stronger uh, feeling. I suppose... Uh, where things have changed and changed in my lifetime is that uh, the southern part of Germany in some sense are now seen as the economic winners and that, that has uh, changed some of these demographics so that uh, you were talking about some of the areas of hardship and economic, uh, the economic precariat that uh, Christian will correct me if I'm wrong, but I would expect to find them more in the north of Germany now. And I think that makes a difference. And that, that is something which has quite changed. It's just not big enough. Overall, people feel, because uh, they, they, they look out and they look at other states in Europe and they think, well, things aren't going too badly here. And then a direct question to you, Natasha, the last question. On the, on the, yeah, on the, on the, so is the narrative going to change with the AfD being, being in Parliament? And that's a good question because, I mean, as you said, that's what we saw in many other European, European countries. And it's hard to say. I mean, one in a way would expect it. And the, on the other hand, of course, you still think, okay, Germany is perhaps a special case and it, it won't get that much normalized, but then you also see that, of course, I mean, today things are being said that perhaps a couple of years ago people wouldn't think would ever be actually said in Germany. And I think it's part of the AfD strategy to always say something and then say, oh, no, we, d we didn't really say that, we didn't really mean it. And I think in that regard the AfD also 
profits from having these um, these kind of more acceptable figures, and then of course these really polarizing and really obviously right-wing extremist people. Um, and then they can always say, no, no, this is the other part of the AfD, the kind of the normal people, the, the ones that are perhaps more critical of the European Union, of, of the uh, economic um, and the, the, the role of the European Central Bank, for example. But, but of course, I mean, there is always this, this really racist narrative. And I hope it doesn't uh, become normalized, but you, you see a, some kind of a trend towards this, not generally, but in certain circles, perhaps. Then the gentleman I had earlier had to... Uh, Mr. Juncker delivered um, a speech um, in the parliament yesterday, uh, scenario six, not mentioning just in a word that he meant a multi-speed or multi-zone Europe which was contrary to what he was proposing in March this year. Uh, which way do you think Europe will be going? Multi-zone or just one zone? Uh, I'm Sam Avis. I work in uh, European Research and Innovation Policy. Um, I'm interested in Merkel in the CDU survival post-Merkel, um, her lack of an obvious successor and the sort of stagnant debate which isn't future-looking. And I wonder if um, involving the FDP and her coalition now with their policies, particularly on digital infrastructure and digitalization, is the CDU's best, uh, best uh, example for surviving into the 2020s. Gentleman, the white shirt. Yes. 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 Then you in front can come as well. Excellent. Uh, Peter Douglas-Banks, hi. Um, the professor gave at the beginning a very interesting uh, statistic that some very large percentage uh, of the German electorate would describe as uh, themselves as being centrist. Self-described, yeah. Self, yes, indeed, yeah. Um, how does that then translate into a lack of support for what we may call the centrist party as the FDP. Uh, how, how does this, this self-description of the centrist not translate into electoral success for them? Let's one more, it, just in front of... Thank you. Uh, three very simple questions. Uh, number one, I think Professor Patterson... Uh, very, very small, madam, very small. Uh, Patterson mentioned about radical ideas you know, not taking place in, in Germany. And you mentioned about economic prosperity is one of the reasons, you know, that, you know, doesn't allow that. And I, I fully agree with that. You know, UK is a prime example and the United States as well. But how much of that, I think, would you say it also lies in the history of Germany, given, you know, you always had a coalition since 1945. So you haven't given it room to kind of a leadership, you know, radical leadership to take place and ideas to take place. And also, very quickly to the lady on uh, immigration expert, uh, Sorry, I don't know your name. Uh, you mentioned, I think, in terms of uh, issues dying down, especially on refugees, you know, what do you think, how much of that could be attributed towards German uh, kind of uh, active or efficient implementation of uh, integration policies, you know, comparing to, I mean, UK, which is not, I mean, really good when it comes to integration policies. And uh, Professor Adendale, uh, Mr. Adendale mentioned at the last point, EU cannot be a vehicle for German domination. But given now, you know, you have uh, one of the major superpower UK, which uh, we like to call ourselves, is absent from the major table. Do you think that will make Germany more dominating power in the, in the future for the next coming years? Thank you very much. Thank you. So I was myself a bit surprised that Juncker uh, apparently changed his mind in, in half a year. Um, but I think that it was a bit of a response to the uh, to, to, to the resurgent European ideals and kind of how, how much support Europe and the EU now enjoys in, in a lot of countries. And uh, my sense is still that the, that the EU needs more flexibility and not less, uh, because uh, as, as the UK example shows and as the example of Poland and other countries shows, not everybody needs to go at the same, at this, in the same direction or same speed, in my view. Uh, and I, I think that Germany... 
is more afraid of a, of of the EU falling apart uh, than it is of giving each and each country a bit more flexibility on the speed. So that's why I think Germany would also be more in favor of a flexible EU than kind of the Juncker idea of one one speed and 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 one one group EU. What about the CDU after Merkel? Okay. Well, first of all, let me let me uh, deal with the FDP. Yeah. Why do uh, the, the two things? Uh, the two things uh, are connected. The you say, well, if Germany is so centrist, why not the FDP? Well, it's because I don't think people don't see it as centrist. The the key uh, program for the FDP is tax cutting. They represent the soul of the German dentist, and. Uh, <laughs> And I don't think that the I don't think that people in Germany see that as the centre of German debate. So that, that's the pro, that's the problem for uh, the FDP. A post a a post a uh, Merkel a CDU. It's quite difficult because I mean when she came to power, people thought she wouldn't last because there were a uh, all of these, uh, uh, all of these rivals, and the Andean Pact, and so on. All these men were going to finish her off. Well, she finished them all off in Syriata. Where are they now? Uh, but is this, in the long run, a problem for the CDU? It's a lot. They have von der Leyen. <coughs> She's quite a formidable candidate. But it's a, and uh, and Jens Spahn. I, uh, People, he, he gets himself a, a huge amount of publicity, uh, at least, and he is he is somebody who's clearly pushing. It's it's very difficult to say four years ahead. I remember uh, after the last election, we thought, ah, oh, well, next election, Hannelore Kraft, that will be it. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't, <laughs> and that that was clear long be. For the election, so I think that uh, I mean it's normally the case that well the two things I would say that after somebody has uh, dominated for a long time underneath the great tree, there's normally nothing, mm. and that that's a problem for parties throughout Europe. But you know, there was there was one thing that's going to some people. I then spend a lot of time looking for successors, and Brandt was one person. There were so many bloody successors at that time. But that's something I have noticed, uh, Frau Merkel going around looking for successors and building them up. Perhaps I've missed something. <laughs> so uh, I don't think she's going to go any time soon. So now we go quickly at this uh, three-in-one, four-one. Uh, radicalization of taking place in Germany. This is just part of this coalition building. Natasha, for you, end the question for the refugee policy. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't remember exactly the first question. So radicalization is not taking part. Because Placing Germany is this because the, there is just this tradition of coalition building and, and not uh, basically going to those, the, ex, the extremes of the mm-hmm. spectrum. Yeah, I think, I mean, what has been mentioned in research was or, was essentially that it is because, as William said, because the economic situation is actually still quite well and that the only factor that made, um, um, that made, uh, or that gave more support to the AfD was really the so-called refugee crisis. So I think it's also the background conditions, really, the economic conditions. And, um, yeah, but I'm happy to uh, uh, think about this. Um, and as concerns the declining numbers, if that was Merkel's, the result of Merkel's policy, I mean, Merkel was under a lot of pressure to really minimize numbers. And it's, it's a huge debate in science, what actually, or in political science, migration studies, what is actually, what has impact on migrants coming to a country, not coming to a country. But there were arguments, for example, that yes, for example, a lot of um, restrictions she introduced, or they, the CDU introduced on uh, family unification made obviously... Uh, it made it more difficult for more refugees coming into the country to unify with their family. That was made impossible for, for large groups of immigrants and, and refugees. Then, of course, there was the EU-Turkey deal, 
which made it harder for uh, refugees coming uh, into Europe through Turkey, the closure of the Balkan route, which obviously also had an impact, and of course Germany's border closures, which are still partly in place in, in Bavaria. So I think that altogether probably had an impact on uh, the lowering of uh, yeah, numbers of asylum applications. I think that's a that's a good question. I think that is that is also um, or was a main main worry. But I think um, Germany knows that it cannot dominate the EU. Otherwise, the EU would not work for other countries. And so, I think the the effect of the UK leaving is that the that Germany will will increasingly try to work even more closely together with France. So, I think the major impact of the UK leaving is to strengthen the German Franco duo again. Thanks very much. My name is Felicity Herman. Um, I have a question about. Sorry, I have a question about the rise of smaller parties. Uh, we've seen quite an influx of smaller parties on the ballot paper. I'm wondering what uh, you expect will happen. Obviously, the major parties have dominated. Uh, Europe, uh, German politics um, in the past few election cycles naturally will there be a difference this time around with so many more choices for voters I didn't hear that so what happened with small parties who wants to answer that and then I'm afraid we have to uh, by small parties you mean uh, not mm. the not the main six even smaller ones like um, okay, so so I think uh, so I think the, the the AFD provides one interesting new choice for people who have a, a very different take on things, um, but I, but I don't think that in general that will that will benefit the the tiny parties I, I would call them, um, also because there is a five percent threshold and no party. Uh, below 5% gets into parliament, and so that is usually a wasted vote. Um, but, uh, but the AFD and the left, and so there, there is a, there's now a wider spectrum because of the AFD. That was, that was an element that was missing maybe for some voters, and so that is why, why there's uh, more choice. And I think that the Grand Coalition is one of the reasons why the small, par the small parties like the Greens, the, 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 the Free Democrats, and so forth, are much stronger than they've been in the past in terms of numbers. Can I? Is that, is that the, the Greens aren't stronger. The Greens, the, the Greens are looking rather weak. And I just wanted to say one thing about that. People sometimes talk about political generations, and the generation of the Greens—they're getting older. It reminds me, there was a friend of mine in Germany who was doing a research project on the 68ers, and he went up and down the whole of Germany interviewing these people. And you know what the only difference he found in these people? They all drove a Volvo. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, yeah, something... They're quite I conservative. Have, we have to come to a close. Uh, I asked the speakers, I didn't tell them to do something which academics shouldn't do, but I want them to forecast which coalition will rule after 24th of September. So, Willie, tell us, who will win? And with whom will Merkel go in bed and crush them? The great she-elephant, yeah. Yeah, probably, prob probably still with the FDP, because I think probably the, the Greens will get over the 6%. Natasha. Okay, yeah. So, hard to say. I think, I mean, the most likely outcome is obviously still a grand coalition, it's not so smart for the SPD to do it, but I think power will, yeah, will, um, yeah, they will prefer that. So I, I, think, I think that the, the black-yellow coalition is, is unlikely because one of the ways that the SPD can mobilize its voters is through fear of a, of a, of a CDU-FDP coalition. And that's why I think they will, they will manage to, to prevent that. Uh, I, I agree with Natasha that in the end it's probably be a grand coalition, but the okay. coalition negotiations will take a long time because it will be difficult to convince the SPD membership uh, to sign up yeah. to another grand coalition. And so um, it will take long, maybe around Christmas. Okay, thank you all very much for your interest in the... <laughs> thank you to the speakers and to the European Institute Administration for organizing it all.